Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to Psalm 38. The superscription here says, A Psalm of David for the Memorial Offering. Other translations have that as a Psalm of David to bring to remembrance. That's from the New King James Version. Peter Craigie says helpfully here, The word is sometimes associated with the memorial offering, as described in Leviticus 2, verse 2, and Leviticus 24, verse 7. But equally, the term might simply imply no more than it says, namely, that the psalm was for regular use by a sufferer in bringing his plight to God's remembrance, closed quote. That is certainly how it came to be used. Psalm 38 is the third of the penitential psalms. So we have 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. It has been used by believers for millennia to lift up cries of agony and repentance unto God. Whether it was ever used along with the memorial offering or not, it appears to have been written primarily as an aid to prayer. So the heading to bring to remembrance is probably to be preferred. The penitent wants to bring God to remembrance because for God to remember is to act. We see that, for example, in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew, closed quote. So in the Bible, when we talk about God remembering, we're not saying that he forgot. We're just saying that to remember is to bring that to mind so as to act. And that's exactly what David wants to have happen here. He wants God to see and to know and to understand what's really going on from David's perspective so that God will act and that he'll act so as to save. So David lays it out. He goes to God and he tells the truth about what's going on and he asks for mercy. Now, as for structure here, scholars and commentators are all over the map, in part because the psalm itself is all over the map, which again makes sense when we remember that this is essentially a cry of agony. It's the prayer of a deeply wounded, uncomfortable, vulnerable, alienated man. So there is a certain progression here, there is coherence, there's balance, but there isn't a great deal of apparent structure. The psalm begins with an opening appeal. There is then an extended description of the psalmist's circumstances, coupled with a complaint with respect to how this suffering has alienated him from his friends and given boldness and encouragement to his enemies. And then it ends with a prayer for God's presence and deliverance. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. 
I mentioned that this is the third of the seven penitential psalms. And this opening here in verses 1 to 2 is very similar to the opening of the first of the penitential psalms, Psalm 6. Listen to the first two verses there. Psalm 6, 1 to 2 says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. So they begin exactly the same in verse 1, and then they begin to diverge slightly in verse 2. And the reason for that is that the sickness in Psalm 6 is not linked at any point to any sin on David's part. But the sickness in Psalm 38 explicitly is. So in verse 3 in Psalm 38, David says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. And then in verse 4, he says, For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. And then listen to the connection made in verse 5. David says, My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. So David is connecting his sickness and suffering to his sin. He believes that God is punishing him justly and harshly for his misconduct, rebellion, and iniquity. And so he's begging here not for leniency, but for mercy. He's saying, God, punish me as a father would punish his son. Do what you have to do, but don't forget mercy when dealing out justice. And that is a remarkable perspective on the nature and character of God. David Dixon says here, It is consistent with God's fatherly love and our sonship to taste of fatherly wrath against our sins as this place proveth, closed quote. This is how people in Bible times thought about and talked about the God of the universe. He was not Santa to them. He was Father. And as the Apostle Peter reminds us, he was Father who judges. I love that line in 1 Peter 1.17. Peter says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Closed quote. So if you're going to pray to God during the time of your exile, Peter says, if you're going to cry out to God from within your many troubles, you better conduct yourself with proper reverence, and you better remember who it is you're talking to. You're talking to Father who judges. Brothers and sisters, we, we would pray so much better and so much more effectively if we took David's example and Peter's wise counsel to heart. Whether we're praying in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we are praying to Father who judges. He loves us, and therefore he chastises us. The apostle to the Hebrews makes that exact same point. He says in Hebrews 12, 5 to 11, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? 
for they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Close quote. So, this psalm, Psalm 38, is reminding us that we are praying to Father who judges. And David is counting on that, actually. He owns up to his sin, but then he appeals to the fatherly love and mercy of God. And he asks for consideration and rescue on that basis. That's mature praying. That's how you pray when you know that God is sovereign and you know that he is Father. Now, we should probably also point out that a comparison of Psalm 6 and Psalm 38 should also remind us that some sickness can be linked to human sin, but not all sickness can or should be. David was discerning enough to know the difference, and so must we be. We are naive if we think that no sickness is linked to sin, and we are cruel if we think that all sickness is linked to sin. And we should notice here that the determination should be left to the individual sufferer. Only the sufferer and the Savior are in a position to inquire deeply and usefully into that particular matter. All right, let's return to the text. We've dealt with verses 3 to 4 and the first part of verse 5, but let's read them now in flow. Verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. Commenting on the interesting Hebrew word used here, translated by the ESV as foolishness, J. Alec Matir says usefully, the implication is that David's sin was a conscious flouting of moral rectitude, which he now regrets as silly beyond words, close quote. Sometimes we do things under the madness of lust or in the heat of the moment or in a fit of anger or jealousy that we immediately recognize as absolute madness, absolute foolishness, don't we? We are so weak. We are so fleshly. It is distressing to realize how our hormones or diet or lack of sleep or simple pettiness can overpower all our wisdom, all our resolve, all our higher ambitions. It's maddening. It is foolishness, and we know it, and David knew that as well. He had done something utterly foolish, and now he was suffering the consequences. Verse 6, I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Derek Kidner says here, The burden is both inward and outward, a torment of mind and body, which is accepted as God's chastening. Close quote. Part of the challenge in reading the psalm is that it is really difficult to discern precisely the line between spiritual and psychological trauma on the one hand and physical trauma on the other. The two are obviously and intimately connected in David's case. 
Now, that isn't to say that his illness was psychosomatic. It, it was real sickness. He talks about wounds that stink and fester. So this isn't just heart sickness or the that feeling you might get in your stomach due to guilt and remorse. No, no, no. This is real bodily sickness, but it intermingles and is amplified by his inner spiritual turmoil. So this is a trauma tangle, and David makes no attempt to unravel it. His sickness is part of his punishment and also a result of his anguish. Both and, yes and yes. And David knows it. He, he feels it, and it overwhelms him. I am feeble. I am crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Here, David seems to be saying that he is too sick and too affected to even pray in a coherent manner. So he just groans. And yet he believes that God can interpret that groan. W.S. Plumer calls it an appeal to God's omniscience. He says, this cuts off the necessity of multiplying words. It gives relief to a pious mind to rest in the assurance of divine notice. And it implies a confidence that God will hear the groaning and grant the desire of his servant, close quote. That's incredibly encouraging. You know, there's a sense in which we might be intimidated by this psalm because it actually is a coherent and compelling poem. And we might almost resent David. I mean, who prays out poetry when they're in absolute agony? I mean, who of us can do that? Well, the good news is that it doesn't appear that David could do that either. There were times in his suffering when all he could do was groan. He, he obviously had days like that. We might reconstruct the situation and say that he had a lot of days like that. And then on his way up, when he was having a clearer day, he wrote this particular prayer, capturing the heartbeat of the entire season of suffering, anguish, and prayer that he had just gone through. But obviously there were days in that season when all he could do was groan. And God heard that because he knew David and he loved David. He, he received those groans in terms of what they signified and represented. Thanks be to God. Verse 9. Oh, Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. David's physical and spiritual agonies were made worse by the fact that they separated him from his friends and emboldened his enemies to make a strategic play against him. Now, he could worry about that. He could try to defend himself. He could lash out, verse 13. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. David realizes here that there are times when it is better not to hear anything and better not to say anything. David knew that there was some truth to the accusations being made against him. He had sinned. He was not a perfect man. Obviously, they were trying to use that to bring him down. They were twisting and exaggerating and distorting. But 
David had entrusted his situation to the Lord, and he was content to let him bring about his eventual vindication. Plumer says here, two things often unite to make the suffering child of God behave like a deaf mute. One is the unreasonableness and violence of enemies, by which he is overwhelmed, seeing no possible good resulting from an attempt to gain a hearing from them. The other is that God most surely and speedily undertakes the cause of those who quietly and patiently leave all in his hands. Close quote. Oh, I love that. That is good. We often waste an awful lot of time and energy trying to defend ourselves against wicked and virulent opponents. But a true man or woman of God knows that we are never without blame. We may not be guilty of what these people are saying about us, but we know things about ourselves that take the air out of our complaints about mistreatment. So we leave things with the Lord. We know we're not guilty of what they say, and we know they won't listen to our explanations. So we leave things in the hands of Father who judges, and we find peace there. In a sense, this is David taking his own advice from Psalm 37. This is meekness. This is playing the long game. This is trusting God through the ups and downs and twists and turns of life. David had learned that if you love God, if, if you trust God, if you play the long game, then you will see blessing and vindication. You will grow. Things do tend to work out for the good for those who know the Lord and are called according to his purpose. David could say in Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Close quote. So it... In the long run, it was good for me to be humbled. It was good for me to be sick. It was good for me to suffer abuse and slander. It made me a better hearer and a better follower of the Lord. So David is, is praying himself into a good place here. He's, he's not railing against the world. He isn't shifting blame. He isn't striving in the flesh. He's praying and he's waiting on the Lord. We see that in verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. So David is owning his sin here, but he is asking that God chastise him in a way that does not finally allow his enemies to rejoice over him. David is the king of Israel. So what happens to him in a special way reflects on God himself. So he, so he says, punish me, yes, but also pay attention to how my enemies are using this situation. Vindicate me in the end, for I am your child, and I have responded to this discipline from your hand. Now, I've said this before. Vindication is an important part of what salvation meant to people in the biblical world. It was a belief that God would vindicate his people that allowed them to maintain faith and meekness in situations of injustice and oppression. Willem van Gemeren says here, 
Vindication is God's response to the needs of his children, who in their utter helplessness abandon themselves to him. Close quote. So David is positioning himself to receive that. I, I'm ready to fall, God. I, I'm pressed down low, Lord. I confess my sin. Your discipline has done its work, God. Now lift me up and vindicate me before my oppressors. This is the sweet spot right here. This is the prayer answering spot. And David knew it and spoke about it on multiple occasions. He said in Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So that's me, Lord, David says. I'm, I'm broken up over my sin. I'm pressed down because of my sickness. My standing before the people is in utter ruin. I am weak and needy, Lord. So come, save me, I pray. You can hear that theme continuing in verse 19 as David brings his prayer to a conclusion. I am weak and needy, Lord, verse 19, but my foes are vigorous. They're mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. John Calvin says here, in these concluding verses, David briefly states the chief point which he desired and the sum of his whole prayer, namely, that whereas he was forsaken of men and grievously afflicted in every way, God would receive him and raise him up again, close quote. Yes, that is, that is exactly right. And that is often precisely the point in God's fatherly chastisements. He wants to humble us. He wants to break our rebellion and self-sufficiency. So he flattens us out. He knocks us down. He, he bends our knee. He gets us on our faces. And then from that place, when we pray like David prayed, owning our sin and expressing our need, then he lifts us up. He brings us back. He raises us up again. And that is the gift of Psalm 38. If you let it, Psalm 38 will lead you exactly to the place you need to be to be assured of God's answer to your prayer. It will take you to the place where you're talking honestly with Father who judges. It will force you to admit that ultimately, he is the author of your affliction. It's not like he fell asleep. It's not like God was overpowered by the devil on this one. Nope. He authored this for you. This is an expression of of his fatherly oversight and care. He loves you, but not with a weak love, not with a permissive love. He loves you with a holy love. He loves you such that he won't let you be less than you were created and intended to be. So he will press you down so as to raise you up. He will break you so as to remake you. And this Psalm will force you to embrace that, which is good. Because it's true. That's who God is. And that's how affliction works. So the sooner you see that, and the sooner you get there, the sooner you're going to be in a place to offer a prayer that has a hope of being answered. W.S. Plumer says helpfully here, It is both an affliction and a comfort to a good man to see the hand of God in all his troubles. An affliction in so much as it shows us how vile we must be to need such 
sore corrections from the loving one. A comfort because we may be assured that mercy shall order everything. Blessed are they who turn unto him that smiteth them and seek the Lord of hosts. Close quote. That's the wonder of this psalm, isn't it? That we are invited to turn unto him that smiteth us and to seek the Lord of hosts. <laughs> he knows you, he loves you, he sees you, and he disciplines you. He is Father who judges. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.